One year prior to Paul's writing 2 Corinthians, he was in Corinth. And while there, he challenged the Corinthian believers about a special need of those in Jerusalem. Hearing about that need, they quickly and zealously responded. Paul, assuming they were sincere, boasted to the Macedonians about those Corinthians. And when, when the Macedonians heard this, it stirred their hearts. They likewise committed themselves to give. The difference was the Corinthians didn't keep their promise. The Macedonians did. So now Paul writes to them here to challenge them about that failed commitment. First by giving them the example of those Macedonian churches in verses 1 through verse 5. First we noted that God had bestowed grace on them. Grace bestowed will always be grace expressed. And then we noted the expression of the grace down through verse 5. First in verse 2 we noted they gave in spite of two great problems, great affliction and deep poverty. Then we noted in verse 3 they gave two ways, first to their power and then beyond their power. And that's the only way they could give because, see, they were in deep poverty. So they had to sacrifice. They had to give by faith. We expanded that, however, by pointing out to you that it is also possible to give out of your abundance. Because really what we're talking about here is grace giving and not simply faith promise giving. Because under grace giving you can make a sacrifice promise or a faith promise or an abundance promise. So just let the Lord lay on your heart how He wants you to give. Then in verse 4 we noted they were giving for others. That's clear benevolence is seen here, but I think we proved to you that the major reason for the giving was not for benevolence, but was for missions. And how could they do this? We saw the answer to that in verse 5, because at first given themselves. I remind us all again tonight, that's really what God wants, not the money. If He wanted, He could get it. What God wants is us. He wants the heart. Then in verse 6, He sends Titus to Corinth. His mission is to somehow help those Corinthians come to the place spiritually so that God can bestow on them that same grace, that grace of giving. In verse 7, after commending them for some of the positive graces already in their lives, he adds to the last part of that verse, see that you abound in this grace, this grace of giving also. Then verse 8 he says, oh by the way, you really don't have to do this. I speak not by commandment. There's a lot we are commanded to do, including tithing, faithfulness to the church, and living for the Lord, and, and witnessing, but we're not commanded to give this offering. You see, friends, this is grace giving. It's a world of difference between law and grace. You can get folks to give with law, but they won't enjoy it. They won't be blessed by it, nor rewarded for it. Grace makes all the difference. This is not a command. But then he adds to the last part of the verse, if you do it, however, you prove something. What do you prove? You prove you meant what you said when you said, Lord, I love you. You prove the sincerity of your love. Then in verse 9, we noted the way that Jesus proved his love to us by giving. Jesus went to the cross and gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners and proved to me and to you that he loved us. You see, friends, love is proved by giving. So if we don't give, what does that prove? Non-love, I, I would suppose. Then I want you to notice with me tonight in verse 10. After noticing first again in verse 8, I speak now by commandment. But then here in verse 10 he says, first part of verse, here and I give my advice. That is, I advise you to do it. You, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit amused and almost chuckle when I read some of Paul's writings. 
uh, he had a sense of humor. And he said, you don't have to do this, but I advise you to. I say the same thing to this church tonight. You really don't have to do this, but I advise you to do it. Then he tells us why. Because this is expedient for you. That you do the giving, he says, and you get the benefit for the giving. That's a good deal, don't you think? Now, in what way is it expedient, which means beneficial to your advantage? In what way? Well, let me say tonight that I believe, first of all, that it would guarantee to this church that God will meet all of your needs. All of your needs tonight, tomorrow, next week. And as long as this church puts world evangelization number one on your agenda, you have an absolute foolproof guarantee that he will meet all the needs of this church. Would you like me to prove it? I was going to do it anyhow. So hang on. Now, what churches is Apostle Paul using here as a challenge to Corinth? The Macedonians. And who are those Macedonians? The church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica. We looked at those churches. We looked at, first of all, the church at Philippi and also uh, 1 Thessalonians on Wednesday night. But let's go back tonight to that same passage in Philippians chapter 4 and look at the same verses we considered then, but then move a little further in the text. Philippians chapter 4. And please remember, these churches are in great affliction and in deep poverty. Let's begin again in verse 10 and uh, just browse through these verses again. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. This is Paul talking about receiving this gift and how he rejoiced in getting it. And we identified him, not just as an apostle, but as a missionary. And if a church is an offering to a missionary, what kind of an offering is it? It must be a missions offering. Now, that verse, I think, implies to us, or pretty well clear, really, that they had earlier supported Paul. But something had brought about a break in that support. And what was it? I think maybe a couple of things. First, they didn't know where he was. Remember, he'd been arrested in Jerusalem and taken off to Caesarea at least for a couple of years, hauled off to Rome for at least where he was imprisoned in Rome. And how's that little church in Asia Minor going to know where he is? Well, you say they could have written a letter. Not all that easy. Well, they could have picked up a phone call. Couldn't do that either. No telegram. No way they can learn. By the way, no email either. That's hard to believe. But finally, some believer came through town and said, hey, have you, have you heard about Paul? And shared with them Paul's situation. And then the difficulty of getting the offering to him. They couldn't write a check and put it in the mail. It wasn't that easy in those days. Somebody had to hand deliver it, and the Papadice volunteered for that task. Now he comes to Rome, where Paul is located, places an offering in his hands. When he gets it, he rejoices. He goes on to say, and I, he said, I'm not writing this. Because I'm coveting your stuff, I'm obviously I'm paraphrasing it, because you see, I've learned something. I've learned to be content if I had support. I've learned to be content if I didn't have support. And then in verse 12, I know how to be a base. That is how to get along without it. I know how to abound. I know how to get along with it. Then in verse 13, again, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Then in verse 14, you've still done a good thing, notwithstanding you've well done, that you did communicate, which means share, with my affliction. 
Then again in verse 15, he points out that this was the only church at that time supporting his ministry as a missionary. Well, even in Thessalonica, you sent, and what they sent, missions offerings once and again to my, uh, to my need, to my necessity. Not because, he said, I desire a gift, but I desire fruit. They may abound to your account. You see, friends, you do the giving, and it is fruit that is deposited in your account. Consider your offering envelopes as a deposit slip. Deposited in the bank of glory. Then he shares with us in verse 18 the way his needs were supplied. But I have all in abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. And what were those things? A missions offering. Then he describes for us, from God's perspective, a missions offering. Now let's make sure we're on the same page. That is what we're talking about here in Philippians 4, isn't it? Is this not a missions offering here that is being described in this chapter? It is. Now here we have God through Paul description of an offering given for missions. Notice please in verse 18. It is an odor of a sweet smell. That's missions. When you give your offering for missions, you won't smell anything. God will. And then it goes on to say this. It's a sacrifice, acceptable and well-pleasing to God. That, my friend, is what God says about an offering given for missions. Now, a question. Would God describe an offering in those terms, giving them uncommitted believers? Some believer comes in, I'll tell you one thing right now. I'm not really excited about this thing, but I'll give a little. You think God's excited about that? No way. God wouldn't say that about a person who gives unwillingly. God wouldn't say that about a person who gives grudgingly, without a love for Christ in it. God wouldn't say a person who gave an offering uh, on, uh, out of any love or joy in his heart, God would say that that offering is precious, is out of a sweet smell. But when an offering is given to God for missions, from a committed heart, willingly, without expecting anything in return, as an expression of love for Jesus Christ, without grudging it or feeling compelled and enjoying his heart, God says, that offering smells mighty good to me. Another question. Do you suppose any people in the church of Philippi, like I'd like to describe for you now, on Sunday night, after the evening service, church of Philippi, a couple of families meet together at the local Philippi McDonald's for fellowship. One of the brothers looks across the table at his friend and says something like this. I'm going to tell you the way I feel about it. And as you know, I speak my mind. That's a lot to brag about, isn't it? The book of Proverbs tells us the fool utters all his mind. So this guy goes on to prove he's a fool by uttering all of his mind. And he says this, I think our preacher's crazy. I'll tell you something else. The deacons are as bad, if not worse, than him. Matter of fact, a whole bunch of folks caught up in, in, in our church caught up in this foolishness. If we let them, they give away all our money. It seems like every time we come to church, they're giving the money away. 
They just didn't understand it costs money to build a church. It costs money for utilities. It costs money for parking lots. But they don't care about that. Just give it all away. And you know what they're talking about now? A missions conference. I don't mind that. I love missionaries. But it's talking about some peculiar offering. They call it faith promise, but it's just a gimmick to get more money out of us. And what are they going to do with it? Give it away. They're nuts. Was anybody in the church at Philippi like that? I think must have been at least a couple because of what a verse for them. Verse 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Is that a promise? Now, isn't it interesting? Brother Morgan, how some people just yank a verse out of the Bible and quote it without the foggiest notion, its context, or what it means. I've heard people take that verse and just quote it, and I wondered, do you have a right to quote that verse? That was a promise made to the church at Philippi, collectively. Now, you can give it a personal application if you want. But first and foremost, it was a local church promise to the church at Philippi. But why did it make that promise? Because the church at Philippi, in great affliction, deep poverty, sacrificially, and by faith, gave permissions without giving one thought to their own needs. And God said, I like that. Now I make you a promise. Whenever you have a bill, bring it to me, and I'll pay it. <clears throat> you know, I don't know everything. I don't even want to know everything. But there's some things I know. I know that God will keep that promise. I've tested it. I've tried it in the laboratory of a New Testament church. I know God will keep that promise. I've pastored Great Oak Baptist Church in Chesapeake for 22 years. When I first became the pastor, I started church as a layman in 1962, but didn't pastor it until 1965. The most we gave in one year's time in those first three years of the church was about 16, no, no, $11,000 for all of our giving. And the faith promise, not faith promise, but our missions offerings, that which we gave for missions, was about $600 each year. But the latter part of 1966, God burned my heart about doing more for missions. Scheduled a missions conference. In January of 1967, the very same week we're meeting tonight, this week in this conference. And our church had the same week ever, uh, and still does. I presented these principles to our church. I begged God, give us $2,400 a year for missions. But before the year was over, he gave us $5,700 for missions, and our general offerings jumped up $17,000. And every year thereafter, every conference, the general offerings would climb. The missions offerings would climb. The last year I passed the church was 1987. I left the last part of the, the last day of 1987. But at the last conference, our annual, that is our weekly church offerings were $5,500. And the missions offer for the year was $115,000 back in 1987. This year it's going to be about $300,000 in that same church. 
We've never, ha never had a real serious financial problem. Not one time. Everything totally paid for. Missions offerings still climbing. One Monday morning, my sector came in. She said, Brother Halsey, she'd been my sector for 20 years. She said, uh, last night after services, some of the folks met in our home for fellowship, and they began talking away that I knew would disturb you. And I feel like I have an obligation to just share with you what they were saying. And I said, you sure do. She was a good in the lawyer's sector. She said this. They said, they didn't understand. we don't understand why we don't have a gymnasium in our church. We're at a Christian school, as you do. We played a sports program all across the state. We had to use the city gymnasium. We'd rent that and practice on the parking lot. So they said, we don't know why we don't have one. Then they said this. With all the money we give the missions. I don't know why we can't take some of it and build ourselves a gymnasium. Now that was Monday morning. How in the world am I going to survive until Sunday? <laughs> you know, the folks that said that were good people. I'm talking about great people who love me and I love them. They just need a spanking. And I was fixing to give them one. Next Sunday morning, I couldn't wait. I, I think I'd die before Sunday. Next Sunday morning, I came in church. Who had any singing, any preaching, any praying, or anything. I came to the platform, had the lady stop playing. I said, something I need to say this morning. I told them what I'd heard. Then I said this. As long as I'm pastor here, no one dime of missions money is going to go for anything but missions. If God wants to have a gymnasium, he'll give us one. Until then, I don't hear anything else about it. I didn't. I say again, they were good people. I love them still today. And they love me. Five years later, we needed one. Those same people helped us raise enough money to build it. Now we've got a nice gymnasium. But not one dime of missions money went into it. I had a financial administrator on our staff who was an accountant. He came in one day. You ever notice how an accountant can look when the numbers don't add up? He had a sober look on his face. He sat down across from me and he said, preacher, got a problem. I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, I've been looking at our cash flow and these bills that are going to be due soon. When they become due, we're not going to have the money. Really? He said, yeah. Hold on, let me get my Bible. I reached across the desk as quick as I could to get my Bible. I was scared. I thought the devil got a hold of my Bible. But I turned as quick as I could to Philippians chapter 4. Whew, thank God. Verse 19 is still there. I turned around and said, read it for me. And he read it. But he still had that look. Then I said this. If I can't believe that, I can't believe John 3, 16. I can't believe that. I can't believe anything else in this Bible. I might just as well close it and go back to working with the telephone company where I'd worked before God called me to preach where I can make a little money. He said, okay. And he left. He still had that look. The next Sunday, I didn't know for some time where it came from. My wife reminded me that somebody died and got a big inheritance. And uh, the offering took care of everything in one offering. Two years later, he came in with that same look on his face. I said, hold on, let me get my Bible. He said, no, mine. And God took care of that as well.
God has blessed this church tonight. God has blessed this church in overwhelming ways. And I know tonight, as you know, that the blessings of God on this church is because from the beginning of your church life, missions was put number one on your agenda, and as long as it stays there, I promise you, God will take care of all of your needs. My friend, that's a promise, and God keeps his promises. So you don't have to do this, but I advise it, because this is expedient for you as a church. Now, I said earlier this week, that chapter 8 and chapter 9, same context. Flows all the way through both chapters and trickles over into chapter 10. Let's look at that trickle. Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking beginning at verse 13 in just a moment. But before we look at the verse, I want to just talk to you a little bit. Several years ago, I was in a conference somewhere, I can't recall just where it was. And the church had a banquet on Saturday night, one of those international things. After the banquet, an open forum. There were all of us up at the front, missionaries up at the front, answering questions. Someone asked me this question. I had never been asked it before, but it sure got me to thinking. The question was, Brother Halsey, what percentage of your personal offerings come from, that is your personal support, comes from faith promise offerings. I never been asked that. Didn't take long to answer it. 100%. 100% of the support my wife and I receive as missionary servant Baptist International Missions comes from faith promise dollars. I started asking missionaries that same question. What percentage, brother? 100%. What percentage, brother? 100%. What percentage, brother? 100%. Every mission I ask, almost. 100%. You know what we're seeing tonight? You know, God's done some overwhelming things these last few years in calling missionaries to the mission field. Now, Baptist International Missions has somewhere over, over 1,000 missionaries. Now, where are they getting their support? Faith, promise, dollars. Now, if this church tonight at a business meeting and canceled your faith promise program and began to support all of this church out of your general budget, how many missionaries could you be supporting tomorrow? I know you're going to have to really think about it a while, but I suppose it's somewhere close to zero. Because I believe this church probably supports all of your missionaries from your faith promise program as most churches do. Now, without 1,000 thousand plus missionaries at BIMI, if faith promise was no longer a part of the, of the agenda of giving for missions, how many missionaries would we have next week? Maybe 100. We could say the same thing for every other mission organization of any size. And then now and then somebody write a book or preach a sermon and say, faith promise is not biblical. My friend, it is biblical. Amen. But a question that I have is, what are they trying to accomplish? 
Are you trying to shut down world evangelization? My friend, the thousands of missionaries, fundamental Bible-believing missionaries serving in the mission field tonight, being supported by faith promised dollars, and God has done this in these recent years. Now, I'm not happy where we are in world missions. I wish we had a lot more missionaries. But when you think about where we would be if we did not faith promise tonight, in terms of world evangelization, scary, isn't it? So it's a way to do what God has commanded you to do. Evangelize the world. Now, look at the verses. Verse 13. But we will not boast of things without our measure. Look at that word measure. It's found about five times these verses. Now, what does that word mean? If I said to you, I don't know how far it is from that wall to that wall, get me a ruler. I want to measure what I'm looking for is the area covered by that space. Now here's what Paul is saying. God has made me responsible to evangelize the whole world. But it's carved a hunk of it out. And it extends from Antioch to Corinth. He gave it to me as my measure. He said, now I can't boast about what God has done with somebody else in their measure. I can't take any credit for what God has done through Peter, through any of the other apostles. I can only talk about what God has done with me in my measure. Your measure, church, is found in this local area. That's your measure. Your measure is found in the missionaries you currently support. That's your measure. You can't take any credit for that. Only what God has done for you in your measure. So, but according to the measure of the rule, which God hath distributed to us a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, and I was always trying, as though we reached out unto you, for we are come as far as you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, and here it makes it clearer for us, that is of other men's labors. But here's what I really want you to get a hold of tonight. But having hope. When your faith is increased, that we should be enlarged by you, according to our Lord abundantly. And then he adds this in verse 16, with this result, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. Put it together. Paul and Silas, traveling through Asia Minor, reporting to the churches. They came to a little town and Paul kind of looked around and said to Titus, you know, there's no church here. Let's start one. But the Holy Ghost said, uh-uh. No, no, you're not going to stop here. Keep walking. Now, I would suspect that would be kind of frustrating to Paul because he had a church planting heart. No church in town. He wanted one there. So he was going to do it. But God says, no, keep walking. Chose another area. And again, the Holy Ghost says, uh-uh, not here either. Then they came to Troas on the back of the GNC. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Frustrated. God said, I'll tell you what to do. Go to bed. So he went to bed. That night, division. Man of Macedonia said, come over into Macedonia and help us. The next day got up, assuredly gathering. 
that God had called him to preach in Greece. They took a ship. And the Bible said the ship took a straight course. Now, I don't know much about ships, sailing ships particularly. I don't think you normally take a straight course. But this one did. The wind was just exactly right. They came across the Aegean Sea and landed over in Philippi. Lydia at the riverside is saved. The demon-possessed woman who's following them around gets saved. Then they're thrown in jail. The jailer and his family are saved. And the church is born in Philippi. He disciples those believers, gets a preacher in place, then heads on further down the road to Thessalonica with their support. One out of one, not bad, is it? Then he comes to Thessalonica, again begins to knock on doors, preach on street corners, warn souls to Christ, disciple believers, train the preacher, got a church in place, then leaves town with their support. Two out of two, not bad, Macedonian churches. Then he comes to Corinth, same thing, knocks on doors, preaches on street corners, wins souls to Christ, trains a preacher, starts a church, then looks off in the distance at Spain and Rome. But he's got a problem. He's come to the end of his measure. He's stymied because that's the measure that God gave to him. But then he tells this church, I have faith. When your faith is increased, like those in Macedonia, then I'll be enlarged by you. God will carve out a larger hunk of the world and give it to me. And then I'll preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. I have a hope this week. My hope is that God is going to, get, God is going to stir your heart in such a way that you are going to desire him to give you a burden to expand the measure of your church so that you can preach the gospel in regions of this world you never dreamed that you'd be able to preach or reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do this. This is not a command, but I advise it. Because this will give you as a church a guarantee that God will supply all your needs and also he'll give you a way to do it. You know how God has a unique way. When it comes across the church that has a real burden for missions, he gets hold people all, all out in the community that have that same kind of burden and steers them here. He's looking for good places to put good people. Keep missions, number one, or agenda, and let nothing, nothing or nobody get in the way of what God has commanded us as a church to do, evangelize the world.